Welcome to Still at Large, a series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will examine an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the best efforts of the various police forces involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. The subject matter is not for young children or those with a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 5 Linda Cook, 9th of December 1986 Early December 1986 saw 24-year-old barmaid Linda Cook living with her friend Linda Gray in Portsmouth, Hampshire, the hometown of the Royal Navy. She had been living there since the start of November 1986 and had been in a relationship with Linda Gray's son since the beginning of October. Linda Gray's son was remanded in detention on the 14th of November, but Linda Cook had continued to live at his mother's house. Linda left the house where she was living at about 11.30pm on the 8th of December to visit her friend in Salton Road, Portsmouth. It must have only been a brief visit as she is reported as leaving at shortly after midnight on the 9th to make her way back south to Linda Gray's house in Victoria Road North, roughly a 20 minute walk along suburban and reasonably well lit streets. At some time between half past 12 and 1 o'clock in the morning, Linda Cook was viciously raped, strangled and stamped on. The ferocity of the attack was extremely distressing. Linda had been so violently stamped on that it crushed her larynx, broke her jaw and caused her spine to fracture. The perpetrator had used such force that he left the impression of his shoe on her skin, leading this to be dubbed by the sensationalist press of the time as, somewhat distastefully, the Cinderella murder. Linda Cook was discovered the following morning on a patch of ground known locally as Mary Row. She was partially naked and horrifically injured. Her underwear had been removed and thrown a short distance from where she lay. The police investigation moved into action and a thorough forensic examination was undertaken. The clarity of the shoe prints left on Linda's body was such that the word flash was clearly legible. Within a short period of time, the make was identified and the number of that particular type sold in the Portsmouth area alone was found to be 250. Forensics also identified the blood type of the assailant, O positive, a type shared with 23.3% of the population. As police investigations grew, house-to-house statements were taken in the area. One of the people interviewed was a local woman called Dina Fogg. Dina Fogg had an interesting story to tell. On the night of the murder, she had gone to a local nightclub called Joanna's. Here she had met a young naval rating called Michael Shirley. She had left the club with him, agreeing to share a taxi and return to her house with him. In the taxi, she said that she needed to call at her mother's in a nearby block of flats and collect her child. Ms Fogg had no intention of returning to the taxi as she made a discreet exit through a different doorway and went home. After 15 minutes of waiting in the taxi, Michael Shirley came to the conclusion that she was not coming back. He settled a taxi fare and went off to find her. After 10 minutes of looking for Dina, he gave up and caught another taxi at 1.23am from Edinburgh Road to the naval base, where he signed back onto his ship, HMS Apollo, at 1.45am. Two days later, 
Shirley and Fogg were to meet again by chance. A conversation that Fogg reportedly found intimidating had taken place, and during the course of it, Fogg claims that both the murder and their close proximity to it were mentioned by Shirley. The following January, Shirley was due to set sail for the Falkland Islands following the Christmas leave, which he had spent with his family in Warwickshire. One evening he had gone out to Joanna's nightclub, where he once again met Dean of Fogg. Following this encounter, Dean of Fogg gave her statement to the police, and on the 5th of January 1987, Michael Shirley was arrested for the rape and murder of Linda Cook. As part of the arrest procedure, Michael Shirley underwent a clinical examination, as well as having a blood test. The police surgeon found healing scratches on Shirley's right cheek, right eyebrow, collarbone, left shoulder, right elbow, right forearm, right index finger, left upper arm and left elbow. These, Shirley said, had happened in Jamaica during a tour of duty, prior to his return to Portsmouth. He was also found to have a pair of shoes identical to those worn by the assailant. Michael had, he stated, bought those shoes in Portsmouth in October 1986. As I mentioned before, there were 250 pairs sold in Portsmouth, but there were roughly 9,000 pairs sold throughout the UK in the key time frame. When the blood test results came back, it was found that Michael Shirley had the same blood type as the killer, but then so did 23.3% of the population. Next up for scrutiny was his account of the evening of the murder. There was, apparently, a discrepancy between the accounts of times given by Shirley and Fogg. Fogg claimed that she had left the nightclub at around midnight and had arrived home at about quarter past. The description of Shirley's journey, according to police, should have seen him arrive back at the dockyard at around 1.15am and not the 1.45am as recorded in the gatehouse book. There was, police insisted, a half hour missing from his timings, more than enough for him to have committed the atrocious attack. With a case built on circumstantial evidence, which can sometimes be very good evidence, police charged Michael Shirley with murder. His trial at Winchester Crown Court began on the 18th of January 1988. Ten days later, and following six hours of deliberation by the jury, Michael Shirley was found guilty by an 11 to 1 majority and sentenced to life in prison. Throughout his arrest, trial and imprisonment, Michael Shirley steadfastly maintained his innocence. Due to the nature of the offence for which he had been found guilty, and his continual denials of any involvement in the case, Michael Shirley was housed in Category A prisons, with the worst, most violent and dangerous offenders. He was so determined to maintain his innocence that in 1992 he began a hunger strike, which lasted for five weeks. In September 1992, his solicitor sent fresh evidence to the Home Office which proved his innocence, but they refused to consider it. Following this, the dreadful frustration which Michael must have been feeling grew to the point where he staged a rooftop protest only returning to the prison after they agreed to let journalist Neil Humber talk to him. As part of his investigation into the case, Humber uncovered a separate statement from Dean of Fogg, and it was quite different from the one used by the prosecution to convict him. In the second statement, Fogg had claimed that she had left the nightclub at around half past midnight, and with the logbook from the taxi driver confirming this, Shirley would have been nowhere near the scene of Linda Cook's murder. Neither the second statement or the taxi driver's logbook were admitted as evidence, a discrepancy Neil Humber described as horrendous. Michael Shirley was not allowed an appeal. 
In January 1993, Shirley began another hunger strike, this time stating it would go on until he had something in black and white to confirm that his case was being re-examined. This second hunger strike lasted for 42 days, until the Home Office agreed to possibly review the case if they were given new evidence in a coherent form. Neil Humber took time off, and consequently lost his job because of it, to write a 49-page report which was handed to authorities. As part of the material which led to his conviction, the shoes which had the same sole as the ones worn by the murderer were removed from his parents' house in Leamington Spa, some 130 miles or so from Portsmouth. Although Michael Shirley said that he may have been wearing them, they are just as likely to have been in Warwickshire on the night of the murder. This probably accounts for why no blood was found on them, another critically important fact that was missing from the court case. Another fact that would have produced a completely different outcome, had it been mentioned during Michael Shirley's trial, related to the scratches found on his body. Initially it was taken that these marks were inflicted during the assault which killed Linda Cook, and that they were consistent with having healed in a time frame that would have made sense of the state of the injuries at the time of the examination. However, it was later stated that there is no clear way of aging healing wounds. This would certainly have introduced an element of doubt, but more damningly for the prosecution case was the lack of material found under the fingernails of Linda Cook nor were her fingernails damaged or broken in any way. Neither the prosecution nor, crucially, the defence mentioned this during the trial. No forensic evidence was entered by the prosecution, a startling fact by itself. Michael Shirley continued to protest his innocence all the time, even making repeated calls for DNA testing to be conducted. Hampshire Constabulary took the line that all forensic evidence had been destroyed or lost following his conviction, a position they maintained until 2001 when, as if by magic, they discovered a slide taken from one of the swabs in a drawer. Then in 2002 they found further forensic evidence relating to the clothing at the crime scene. Very shortly after this new evidence was found, Michael Shirley was exonerated of any wrongdoing and released from prison in July 2003. During the process of clearing Michael Shirley, deeper consideration was given to the forensics found at the scene, and in particular to the traces of semen. At some point, it was alleged, that Miss Cook had had sexual intercourse with another person who was not the attacker. However, this theory soon fell apart when the underwear was considered. There were no traces of semen on them at all, meaning that they had had to have been removed before the dreadful injuries were inflicted. The principal report of the 30th of May 2002 said this Following an act of sexual intercourse in which semen has been deposited in the vagina of a female it would be expected that over a period of time the semen would drain from the vagina onto the crotch region of any pants worn by the female. In this particular case there was no semen staining detected in the crotch region of the pants recovered from the scene. In the light of the findings on the vaginal swabs taken from Cook had the semen detected in her vagina been deposited there prior to the removal of the pants, I would have expected there to have been detectable levels of semen staining in the crotch region. All this tends to the conclusion that the semen found inside Cook's vagina had been deposited there after her pants had been removed and consequently was deposited by her attacker and is therefore material to matters at issue. There had been some speculation that Linda Cook had had a sexual encounter prior to her fatal attack, but the evidence we've just heard and the testimony given by Linda Gray make it more than highly improbable. 
In giving evidence, Linda Gray stated, During the time that Linda Cook lived with us, I have not been aware of her having any other boyfriends. In fact, I am sure she didn't, as she was with me virtually all of the time. In giving an account of Linda Cook's movement on the day she died, Linda Gray said that the two of them had been together since about 10.30am until 3pm when Linda Cook went to collect Linda Gray's daughters from school and give them their tea. It was just after 10pm when the two women saw each other again, with the daughters and the man that Linda Gray was in a relationship with. There was little to support the notion that Linda had had any sexual contact with anyone other than during the lethal attack in the early hours of the following morning. Lord Justice Laws was very clear on this point in the summary prior to quashing Michael Shirley's conviction. The truth is that, taking the scientific evidence together with such knowledge as we have of Miss Cook's movements in the hour before she was attacked, the overwhelming probability is that all of the semen found in the intimate swabs was deposited by one man on one occasion, that is to say her killer when he raped her. With his conviction quashed, his life in ruins and released from prison, Michael Shirley went back to freedom to rebuild and recover. Unfortunately, because of the years that had passed, the destruction of evidence following the unsafe conviction of an innocent man, the real killer of Linda Cook was free and Linda's family were left without answers. Michael Shirley's lawyer, Anita Bromley, said this in May 2016. The family of the victim um, were distraught when Michael Shirley was released, understandably, because it meant that they were reliving the trauma from all those years before when they lost her. They deserved to be given the closure which finding the comfort might achieve. Linda was a well-liked and popular young woman with friends and family in the Portsmouth area. Could her killer be from amongst them? It seems highly implausible, even more implausible, when a broader look at similar unsolved murders of young women around the time and across the country is considered. In total, there are 18 unsolved murders, which seem to have features very similar to those of Linda Cook's. Excessive violence, sexual motivation, and the victim's clothing disarrayed, with some items being thrown about during the assault. There were, in the mid-1980s, several serial killers active in the UK. John Canaan, Peter Tobin, John Duffy and David Mulcahy, Fred and Rosemary West, Dennis Nielsen, Harold Shipman, as well as Robert Black. But not all of them have an MO which matches that of Linda's killer. Indeed, if we filter out the highly unlikely suspects, the field is reduced even further. Peter Tobin was familiar with the towns on the south coast, having lived in Brighton in Sussex and travelled around extensively. One of his wife's parents lived in Portsmouth at the time of Linda's murder. In 1984, Tobin was questioned by police in relation to the rape of an eight-year-old girl in Portsmouth. Tobin is suspected of many more murders than the three he was handed a whole life tariff for. He is the prime suspect of being the killer involved in the Bible John killings in Scotland in the 1960s, and given his propensity for violence towards women, it wouldn't be out of the question for him to be responsible. The railway killers, John Duffy and David Mulcahy, were very active in the early to mid-1980s. They are responsible for raping and killing young women near to railway lines, and the railway line to Portsmouth Harbour 
runs across the route that Linda would have taken both to and from visiting her friend in Salton Road. She would have had to have crossed the railway twice at some point on her journey. Sexual violence was their hallmark, and again, it is possible for these two to be responsible. In 2009, police launched an investigation into unsolved rapes and sexual assaults in the Peterborough area stretching back to the 1970s. Called Operation Highfields, its remit was to consider cold cases, one of which was the 1979 murder of Sally Ann McGrath in Peterborough. Sally had last been seen on the afternoon of the 11th of July 1979 at the Bull Hotel, where she told friends she was going to the unemployment office in Church Street. She was never seen again. Her disappearance marked a major search, with more than 3,000 people interviewed and over 10,000 statements being taken. Despite all of this, no arrests were made, and no sign of her could be found. The dedicated team of 50 officers even called in Interpol to aid with the search, as there had been a large contingency of American servicemen based at RAF Alconbury that summer. Even with this extension to the investigation, no answers were forthcoming. In March the following year, three miles from Peterborough city centre, in a shallow grave and badly decomposed, Sally McGrath's remains were located by a gamekeeper. Keith Dickinson had been hunting rabbits when he came across the gravesite in dense woodland known as Wild Boar Spinney. Her mother, Mrs Christine McGrath, had made an impassioned appeal in the local press for her killers to please own up. But no one did. A post-mortem revealed that Sally had suffered head fractures and a broken nose shortly prior to or at the time of her death, but the cause of her demise could not be determined with any accuracy. Her killer was to remain at large for another 31 years. In October 2011, following a lengthy investigation, a 59-year-old man, Paul Taylor, was arrested for the murder. His arrest came as part of the operation and reviews of cold case rapes and sexual assaults in the months prior to the murder. When he was arrested, Paul Taylor was living in Fareham, Hampshire, where he had been known as a womanising builder and had also run a fish and chip shop with his wife whilst they raised a family. Fareham is a coastal town on the other side of Portsmouth Harbour. It is a mere 15 to 20 minute journey, well served by motorways and trunk roads. Taylor had moved to Fareham in the early 1980s thereby placing him within striking distance of the area where Linda Cook was attacked and murdered. In 2011, Paul Taylor was convicted of Sally McGrath's murder, three rapes, one attempted rape and one serious sexual assault at the end of a harrowing investigation and court case for his victims and their families. The jury took 23 hours to deliberate before returning the guilty verdict. Speaking after the trial, Detective Superintendent Jeff Hill said... As a result of this inquiry, we have already considered what other offences may have been committed by Taylor. Given the nature of the offending, there is every chance similar crimes have occurred that we just quite simply don't know about. As such, it is not beyond the realms of possibility that there are other victims of rape and other serious sex crimes who have never reported matters to the police. In praising the courage and fortitude of the victims who came forward to give evidence and testimony, D.S. Hill said... We were delighted when those key witnesses not only provided us with a comprehensive recall of the offences going back to the 1970s, 
but also provided us with additional compelling evidence of the events at the time. Paul Taylor certainly fits the violent sexual offender profile that Linda Cook's murderer would have. Sally McGrath's head injuries indicate blunt force trauma, although it cannot be categorically stated what was used to inflict those wounds. There is another problem with Paul Taylor being her likely assailant, namely that all prisoners arrested for a recordable offence have, since 1995, been profiled using their DNA. Had there been a match between that and the sample obtained from Linda Cook, her murder would have featured in Taylor's criminal case. Hampshire Constabulary were contacted by a former police officer to make this connection. A spokesman for Hampshire Constabulary said, We cannot confirm if Mr Taylor has been investigated for the murder of Linda Cook for data protection reasons. A review of all the information and evidence in the Linda Cook murder case is ongoing as part of the regular routine work carried out by Hampshire Constabulary. We're always grateful to members of the public who make genuine attempts to assist with solving any crime. No new suspects or any new leads of inquiry have been identified at this time. It seems then that despite the reasonable similarities, Paul Taylor is not the killer. There is another possibility. The murderer of Linda Cook may have never committed any other similar crimes. It's unlikely, but a possibility. He may have stopped offending. He may have settled down. He may have a secret that his wife or girlfriends either have no idea of, or possibly they suspect that he has a violent past. He probably has a tendency towards sexual violence. He may even have alluded to a previous serious sexual assault as a way of threatening and controlling his partners. If he hasn't already been imprisoned for a similar offence, it must be considered that of October 2016, somewhere in the community, Linda Cook's killer is still at large. If you have any information about this crime, or any other case featured on Still at Large, please contact the relevant police force. Links will be provided on the pages for this podcast. Some music was by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large was written, produced and presented by Desmond J. Brambley and is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production. <laughs>